Thank you for joining us for today's message. We're always encouraged to know how God is using this ministry to change lives. If you have a story to share about how God is working in your life, please let us know by sending us an email to amen at imtheexchange.com. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at imtheexchange.com. Doing this will help us to bless others and bring messages to you each week. Today's message is from our lead pastor, Pastor Jared Brooks. Please take a moment and prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. I'm excited to be in the house of the Lord, amen? I'm excited to be here and worship with you and excited to celebrate this season uh, that we have. Listen, it has been crazy. (laughs) 2020, I remember starting off this year and in the first few weeks, I remember saying things like, Already, this has proven to be the greatest year of my life. It's so awesome. And little did I know that uh, we were about to go into quarantine for a few months. Little did I know we would be in the middle of the riots and things that we're in right now. Um, So as much as I anticipated it to be all roses and rainbows and butterflies, it kind of turned out to be a little bit more challenging at times. But here's my, my security and my hope and my uh, uh, dreams. Whatever. They all lie in the fact that one thing has stayed constant and consistent, and that is my relationship with God and my dependency upon Jesus Christ. Hey, somebody say amen. Okay, right? That's the one thing that's held constant in the middle of all this uh, craziness and chaos, but this quarantine is driving me mad. Anybody else? I mean, maybe you do good with quarantine. You love it, but I, I don't, and that's why I have not really been quarantined because uh, because I just don't do good locked up. I have I'm claustrophobic anyway. My dad was a big man growing up, and he would to punish me or when we were wrestling, and if I get on his nerves or whatever, I change TV. He would lay on me. The worst thing you could do because I couldn't breathe, I couldn't move, and I just started seeing my life flash before my eyes, and, and I just can't handle claustrophobia, okay? So I don't like being cooped up and locked up. I don't do tight spaces, but quarantine's driven me crazy, right? How many of you have started binge-watching TV like never before? Be honest. Be honest. You've binge-watched TV shows and movies. I mean, Shelly and I, we've gone through TV series after TV, I mean, just and it's like, it's like it's our last month on earth. I mean, I come home from work, and I'm like, are you ready to start the show? Yes, we need to start it. What episode are we on? We get to our TV series. And not just one series. We binge-watched several series. And you would think that it's our last, like they're about to take TV away for life. And we have to get in these shows before the world goes back to normal and we don't have time anymore, right? But uh, I don't know if you're like me, but, uh, man, we binge-watch and binge-watch and binge-watch. But I don't enjoy commercials. Anybody else? Okay. That's why I I will watch. There's one particular series that we're watching right now that uh, her mom and dad told us to watch, and it's it's been an awesome series. But it's only on-demand. And on-demand's not fun to watch because they make you watch the commercials. They make you fat. You cannot fast forward through the commercials. You fat. You push the fast forward button, and a little white red circle with an X that says this uh, feature is not available at the moment or whatever. And you're like, ha! Oh man, that's why I record live fast forwards. I just don't like commercials. I don't like to sit through commercials. But uh, Netflix is kind of the way to go if you can find a good series on that because you don't have to sit through commercials, and, and you can just watch TV series so fast, and it's and it's uninterrupted, and and it's beautiful. But I don't know how many of you actually sit through the most important part of a TV show or a movie. And I used this illustration a few years ago, but I'm going to do it again. The most important part of a TV show and a movie is the credits, right? It's the credits at the end. Now, how many of you stay, you finish a show, and you watch through the credits, right? Nobody? And Netflix or, or, or uh, on demand, I think Netflix does the same thing. When you're in the middle of a TV show or a series, 
and you get to the end of that episode, the credits start, but then uh, it automatically sends you to the next episode. So even Netflix and them know that the credits is a waste of time. But to be honest, the credit is the most important part of the show. But the only time that people ever really pay attention to the credits is in the Marvel movies. Okay? Right? You go see a Marvel movie in the movie theater, then you know that at the end of the movie theater, nobody's getting up. At the end of the movie, right? Nobody gets up. They just sit there. And when people get up, you look at them and you're like, rookie. Right? They obviously have not been to a Marvel movie before because who gets up at the end when the movie's over? You sit there and you wait, right? And the last Marvel movie that I really remember going to see in a movie theater was The Black Panther. Okay? Probably one of Marvel's greatest movies. I mean, it was just awesome. But I remember at the end of the movie, sitting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And it seemed like the credits were going to go on and on and on and on, like 10 minutes of just scrolling through names, names and names. Have you ever tried to read some of those credits? It's unbelievable, the people that make those credits. Hey, just a, a little FYI, Jay Knight, Pastor Jay uh, did a, a film here recently with uh, the, what was it, BBC? Yeah, and... Uh, so he gets his name in the credit. That's the only time I watch the credits is if I know you or it's a Marvel film, okay? So if you make the credits, I will watch the credits uh, and root you on. But so I'm sitting in this, this, this movie watching the credits roll and roll and roll and roll and roll. And finally it gets to the very, uh, towards the end of the credits and boom, this hidden scene pops up. This hidden scene that's giving us a glimpse of the next movie. Right? It's like a, or maybe it's the end of that movie, but it's like a, a, a just a major twist that, that you didn't see coming. And so you have to wait in the credits to see all that. But as you sit there and you wait and you wait and you wait, you watch the credits and you see things like janitors and, and bakery people, like the lady that brought donuts onto the set or the, the makeup artist or the makeup artist assistants, 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 number three to the makeup artist's assistant, right? And, and you just see all these just crazy credits. I mean, it's unbelievable how many editors they have. It's not an editor. It's just hundreds of editors that are working on this film and, and special effects and the graphics and the artists and all that kind of stuff. But as you're watching that, and it goes on and on, as much as we would like it to go faster, it helped me realize this, that the shorter the credits, the less impressive the movies would be, right? The shorter the credits, the less impressive the movie would be. And it's amazing because there's so many people involved in the credits, but it's got me thinking about this, about you and me and about our lives. And, and I shared this a few years ago, and I'm going to turn it a little bit today for, for our seniors especially. But when I think about our credits, I think about what all would be in my credits, what all would be in my life. So if my life were made into a movie, at the end of my life, what would my credits look like? Who would be in my credits? Who would who would have a, a big role in my credits? Who would have just a small role in my credits? And then it, it got me to thinking about your life and what your credits would look like. And then I have to ask myself as a pastor, what would my role be in your credits? Would my role be significant? Would, have, I, have I spoken something that, that pulled you out of a, a, an ugly space or have I, have I encouraged you? Have I, have I been an example? Or, or have I, I hurt you? So what role do I play in your credits? You know, am I a hero? Am I a villain? Am I a lover? I had to make eye contact. <laughs> so what, what is your role? What, are your, what is your role in, in our credits and and, and so you have to ask yourself that. And then it comes down to this ultimate question. What role would Jesus play? What, where would he be in the credits? Would he be a main character? Would he be uh, a producer, an editor, a writer? 
would he be an extra, you know, a fill-in, uh, a standby, you know, the a stunt guy that's that's just kind of pops in and out to do a couple of big dangerous things, but nobody ever really sees their face because we pretend that as actually somebody else, right? You know what I'm saying? And so what role does Jesus play? Would he actually have his picture on the little Netflix icon or whatever pops up on that? The point I'm trying to make here today, especially to those who are, are graduating, is that if you ever want to achieve anything great and significant in life, you have to have other people in it. You have to have other people involved in what you're doing and what you're going through. And you weren't meant to do life alone. And I remember, especially when, when I was graduating, that's a time of life when people say this a lot. They say, well, you're finally getting out on your own, KK. You're going to get out there on your own. Jenica and Dylan and me, you're finally going to get out there on your own. And No, that's a terrible idea. Okay? Don't. Because... This is not a, now I'm going to get out there on my own step in life. And if, you, and if that's the mentality you go into this with, and wherever you are in life, if, if you're now at that place where, well, now I'm on my own, or I've got to go out this on my own, then that's the wrong mentality, and you're setting yourself up for immediate failure because short credits equals a really raggedy movie, okay? So you need people, so you weren't, meant to do life alone, and, and, and every time I think about this or think about this process, my, one of my favorite all-time songs comes to mind, and for those of you who think that I just listened to Hillsong Worship, I'm sorry, I got to be honest with you, I don't, okay? I do listen to it. That's not all I listen to. I've got a little Van Halen, a little white snake in my life. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But one of my favorite songs is by uh, White Snake, and uh, it's it's probably my top five favorite songs of all time. And uh, and if I could go sing karaoke to it all the time, I would. Uh, but the song says this: Here I go again on my own, going down the only road I've ever known. Like a drifter, I was born to walk alone. And then he goes on and says, I made up my mind. I ain't wasting no more time. Here I go again. Right? Wrong. <laughs> that is one of my favorite songs of all time. But it is not correct. Okay? Uh, I was born to walk alone. No, you weren't. You were not born to walk alone. You were not born to do life. Okay, you're not a drifter just, just making your way through this chaotic, crazy life. That's not how God created you. God created you to be a part of a body, a community of people, of believers, people that are going to be with you in the good times and the bad. He even created you to be with people who rub you sometimes the wrong way, and that's called ironing, sharpening iron, and it builds character, and it builds perseverance, and it builds faith, and when it's all said and done, it brings about maturity in your life and so so we need people in our life we need there's there's got to be some villains in our life occasionally people that that kind of cross us the wrong way because through those situations it builds character I used to love it when I was uh, the director of a Bible school program because one of the greatest uh, lessons that our students ever learned was in their house at, with their roommates, you know? I mean, I, I put them in class all day long and try to teach them or try to, you know, disciple them or give them stuff, but it's the fights that they had in their own rooms and houses that probably taught them some of the greatest lessons ever. We need people. Everybody say, I need you, and you need me. We're in this together. Hebrews Chapter number 10, starting with verse 25, it says this. It says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love. What? To love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as, the habit, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Listen, our job is to stir up one another to love and good works. 
to encourage one another, to lift one another up. The Bible teaches us that we're to stir one another up, meet together, encourage people. I need you. You need me. (laughs) This body needs you. Your family needs you. And so we never get to a place in, in our life where we're finally out on our own. We have to do life together. We're better together. So again, what role do you play in the credits of this body? What role do you play in the credits of just the kingdom, the kingdom of God? To help you understand this a little bit more, I'm going to look at a story. And this is found in the book of Exodus. Exodus uh, chapter number 17, starting with verse number 8. Now this is, uh, this is when Moses is, is, they're getting ready to go fight a battle with the Amalekites. I'm going to read this passage for a second. It says this, verse number 8 says, the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men to go and fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I'll stand up on top of a hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. And when Moses' hands grew tired. (laughs) They took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, and Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Okay? So I'm going to need a little bit of help here, and I'm going to use some of our seniors. And uh, for social distancing purposes, I have brand new masks um, that were made by a customer of mine. And so they're, they've never been used. So I'm going to ask KK and Dylan and Jenica and Mia to come help me. And then, let's see, I need uh, And then uh, Miss Taryn, will you come help me too? All right, let's give them all a round of applause because they seem so excited. So excited to uh, be a part of this mandatory drug awareness assembly. (laughs) Anybody know what I'm talking about? No? Okay. Never mind. Uh, Okay. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go with uh, Dylan. You're going to be Moses. Okay. And... um, Jenica and Caitlin, you're going to be Aaron and her, which is a him, because you're going to be her, okay? But her's a him, okay? All right? And then Mia and Taryn, if y'all come over here, and you, oh, yeah, wait, wait, social distancing. I forgot. Y'all were just standing too close. Okay, Um, let's do this, because some of these masks, oh, there you go. I'm proud to be an American. you, you, You wear the American flag. Moses, um, uh, let's see, you represent the U.S. Air Forces. Uh, I don't even know what all these are. They're, they're reversible. You're welcome. Okay, uh, Mia, you are the enemy. You wear Texas Longhorns. Did I say that out loud? And you wear Texas Tech, my lady. Okay, and then you just be be camel girl. Actually, it's reversible, so whichever you choose. All right, so here's what we're going to do. So here's the story. Uh, Mia, you're Joshua, now that we're all safe, except for me. Uh, You're Joshua, and you represent all the Amalekites. Okay, Moses, Aaron, and her, him. Okay, so Moses, you stand over here. Stand over here, Moses. Now, as I tell this story, you guys got to act it out, okay? You got to show some kind of emotion, uh, pressure. So Moses takes the staff of the Lord, which is a Jose Altuve autographed, authenticated bat. Now, I'm not saying Jose is God, but he is a baseball God. (laughs) I'm just saying, just saying. 
So Moses says, I'm going to take the staff of the Lord, and he tells Joshua, ready? He says, I want you to go out, and you're going to fight the Amalekites. You're going to take the army, and you're going to fight the Amalekites. And so whenever I hold this sword, this staff of the Lord, when I hold it up above my head, you will win. Okay? So he sends Joshua out. See, Joshua, you come over here, and the Amalekites, and y'all are going to have to air box or air karate or something, okay? So I need y'all to air box. Ready? Okay, so he holds up the sword. It's above his head. It's above his head. Higher. And Joshua's winning. Win. I need you to win. This is the weakest Joshua I've ever seen. Joshua, I need you to win. Come on. Good fight. Kicker. Now, it's, these are, I mean, he's whooping you. He's whooping you. Come on. Whooper. Whoop. Poor Joshua. Poor Joshua. But the scriptures tell us that when Moses' hands got tired and the sword went down, Joshua started losing. So, come on, Amalekites. Take him. Take him down, Amalekites. Fight him. There you go. That's good. So what happened was Aaron and her, him, they came around and they got on either side of Moses. And, and the scriptures tell us that when he got tired, they got a rock and they pulled up the rock behind him and they set him down. And then they took his hands and they held his hands up so that he could hold the sword or the staff. Here, let's not break our LED lights. Here, we'll put it in both hands. There we go. And so they held up his hands. And so anytime that he got tired, they would lift his hands up. And when his hands were raised, what happened? Let's see it. I, do you know what a DDT is? I need a DDT, a body slam, an arm bar, something. You got to give me something. Okay, at least choke her out. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Okay, give him a big hand this morning. Thank you, guys. Y'all can go down. Uh, yeah, you put them right back there. I'm not going to touch them, though. But thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I will burn the Texas one later. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I love Texas, just not the Longhorns. Now, listen, what, what I'm trying to say here, and what I wanted to illustrate with this uh, little moment is the fact that you've got Joshua, the leader, and he's kind of the star of the story. Uh, Moses. Moses is the main character. He's the main guy that everybody's focusing on. And he tells Joshua, he says, you're going to go into battle. You're going to fight the Amalekites, okay? And so if this was a movie, if this was a movie scene, maybe we should have acted this part out. But if this was a movie scene, I like to picture it like this. Like Moses tells Joshua to go out and take the army out, and Joshua turns into William Wallace. Okay? Anybody with me? I feel like nobody watches TV except me. Like I'm the only person that watches. Okay, William Wallace, right? And, 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 and Joshua's like, man, I don't know, you know. Or the army's like, I don't know. And Joshua's like, we could do it. And he's like, I don't know. And they're like, they're going to kill us. And Joshua says, die you may. <laughs> right? <laughs> you can go home. And you can live today. I don't even know what accent this is. It's going to turn Spanish, Chinese. I don't know. It's going to be. A few things. It might be a little Russian in there. He's going to say, you can go home and you can live today until the end. But I tell you this, we can stand up and you can face them. You can say you may take our life, but you never take our freedom. Right? Something like that. So, <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> so this is, this is Joshua riding up and down this this in front of the army with a half blue face and a half white face and he's psyching them up and he's talking them up but the problem is it really all comes back to Moses and this staff this this rod this this rod of the Lord and so Moses tells Joshua to go out Joshua to go out and Moses has this magical staff and as long as he keeps it above his head they're winning and they're Winning and they're destroying them, but every time he goes down, and so it was exactly what we illustrated. When he got tired, he they set him on a rock, and Aaron and her stood on either side of him, and they held his arms up to literally hold that rod up. The point I'm trying to make is this: the battle was eventually won, but it was won because Moses had to have somebody with him 
that were holding his arms up. The battle wasn't going to be won. And, and what's crazy is, is in this story, you see the hero, you know, the hero. In fact, it goes on, it reads, and it says, now Joshua won the battle. It was more than Joshua, right? And what about the sword maker? Does he get any credit? They didn't mention him in the, in the story, but Joshua had a sword. And had he not had a sword, it would have been tough to win the battle. I mean, he's not David. You know, he doesn't have that kind of accuracy. And so he goes into battle, but nobody mentions the sword maker. And so you've got Moses, the star, and then you've got Joshua. He becomes the hero winning the, the battle. And then you've got Aaron and her, the sidekicks, who get a little bit of love. But that's really the only people that are getting credit in this story. And there was so much more to this story than just what we read. Listen, as a, as a pastor and a, as the pastor of this house, I will always do everything in my power to keep vision set before us, to keep the clarity set before us, and, and to do my best to pray for you when you're sick. And, and, and if there's a moment that you need wisdom or counseling, I'll do my best to do that. I'll dedicate the babies. I've met, we've married people. We had our first funeral in this church just a few weeks ago. Whatever I have to do as your pastor, I'll do that because I want to be a part of your life. I want to do life together. And, and, and when the credits are rolled for your life and mine, I hope that we share that. But what role do you play? The exchange needs Joshua's that go to the front line and they, they lay their life on the line. They give everything that they have to a cause that's greater than themselves. But the exchange also needs the people who actually were never even mentioned in this story. The people who their names go kind of unnoticed and unrecognized. The people that are in the nursery right now and in the back watching our kids. And, and typically when we don't have social distancing that are standing at the door greeting and helping everyone out. Some of those unnamed people that are not in the story. See the church, the body has got to have those kinds of things. The Bible says in verse 13, Joshua overcame the Amalekites with the sword. But it doesn't say anything about the rest of the army. It doesn't say anything about the sword maker, you know, thanks to this incredible crafted sword made by Titian Dean Fowler. And it's his birthday. Happy birthday, Titian. So the question is this, are you willing to do your part? Are you willing to play your part? My point is that movies are pretty lame without pages of credits, without tons and tons of people who play a role in your life. The church needs you to become everything that God's called you to be, but you need me, I need you, we need each other, amen? When the credits roll in our lives, we need friends in our credits. We need family in our credits. We need people who look like us and then people who don't look like us. We need everyone. And as I was working on this message, <laughs> in the midst of everything that's going on in our nation, it just gets you thinking. Um, I, I keep my mouth shut all the time. When it comes to politics, when it comes to COVID, oh my word, uh, a friend of mine, a pastor in uh, Holiday, Texas, posted something one time, and I just agreed with him. Oh, man, I don't even know half the people. I just got chewed on and spit out, and so I don't even give my opinions about that. I just try not to say anything, because I'm not trying to start fights and fires with people. I just... Love people. I'm not trying. And sometimes I would like to post my opinion, but I know my opinion is just going to cause a big fight with somebody. There will be a few people that agree, but there will always be somebody that disagrees, no matter what, right? Anybody? I know, you, I, I know I have those people in my life. And so I don't say anything about my political views. I rarely say a whole lot about sports uh, anymore because those, that's a hot topic, uh, believe it or not. Um, social rants and all that stuff. But listen, where we're at right now today uh, and what's going on in the world, it's disgusting. And uh, it is sad. 
it's really, really, really sad. Um, I had to, uh, I sat down with Jenica uh, this week, and I just had to have another real serious talk with her. She's graduating. She's fixing to go to college. And um, she's, she's had a couple of experiences with me. I got stopped one time, and we had a bad experience. And the, the, the police pulled me out of my car and, and, uh, because they weren't sure why she was with me. She's my daughter. She was like 11 or 10 or 11 at the time. And they didn't know what was going on, so they just, without any reason, I was actually leaving church, uh, and, and I got stopped for rolling through a light as it went from yellow to red. I kind of rolled through it and didn't stop, so they stopped me. But when they noticed that there was a difference in color, it became an issue. I didn't know it was an issue because I just thought she was my daughter, but it became an issue. And so she's experienced that with me, and I've experienced that, you know. Since she was a baby, you know, I've gotten looks, and she's gotten looks, and she'll bring friends over, and what's funny is she doesn't prep her friends that I'm white. <clears throat> and so her friends will come over, and they're like, oh, and Jen's like, hey, this is my dad, and they're like, oh, hi, and then they walk away, and they're like, your dad's white, you know, so we just don't, it, we just don't talk about it, it's not a thing. I mean, I know she's not actually my, I know we didn't give birth to her, but I don't know anything different. She's my daughter. And um, so I had to have a talk with her this week that is disgusting. And it's sad, sad, sad. And uh, it's the same talk that a a lot of um, black moms and dads have been having to have with their kids for a long time. And it's not right. And... uh, I don't believe all cops are bad. I believe there's great, incredible police officers doing their job. I don't believe all black people are bad. I don't believe all white people are bad. Um, But I believe justice needs to be handled. And uh, somebody has to pay for not doing things right the first time. As a result, we're into this rioting and... uh, um, I'm all about protests. Someone said something to me this morning. Actually, uh, David David and I were talking about it, and he said something about protesting. I said, look, I ain't got no problem protesting. I have zero problem with people protesting. It's the way in which we protest. Martin Luther King protested, and, uh, and, and he never threw a chair through a building, never threw a table through a building, never burned down a target, never stole anything while protesting, but yet he changed the world. Just walking. And so I don't have a problem with that. I just have a problem with the hate and the anger that has just filled people's hearts. The evil that's, that's just done some, you know, hate has done such a good job of splitting and dividing America, right? Um, anger has done such a good job of bringing bitterness and, and, and frustration. And it's not a white or a black thing necessarily though people make it into that. It's not a police good and bad thing. People make it into that. You can make it into whatever you want to make it into, but at the end of the day, it's not right. It's not right. It's wrong. And, and, and at, at the end of the day, as believers, we have to compare ourselves and align ourselves with one thing, and that's Jesus. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus say? How would he respond? How would he react? You know? I'm not even saying compare yourself to the the scriptures because in the scriptures you can take any scripture you want. You can take it out of context and you can justify a lot of things. You You can justify slavery with the scriptures, but you can't with Jesus. You can justify the oppression of women in the scriptures, but you can't with Jesus. You can justify violence and 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 vengeance through some of the scriptures. But you can't through Jesus. So the mirror and the the constant that we have to measure everything around has got to be Jesus. And and that's what breaks my heart with what's going on in the world. And and so having these discussions, it's just, it saddens me. But at the same time, it empowers me to continue to be Jesus and have 
the same kind of voice that Jesus had. And that's still loving. Jesus says this, pray for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So this is not a a time for war and to pick sides or whatever. This is a time for the church to stand up and say, hey, I get it. I love you. I love you. I I was telling D, me and D, Daryl's one of my neighbors. I was telling D last night. I said, I think if I was a cop, I'd have a rifle in one hand because people were crazy down there and a poster in the other hand that says, I'm sorry. And everybody, I would be like, back up, back up. But I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. That's not right. It's not fair what happened to you. I'm so sorry. Back up. Back up. You put, put that bottle down. Back up. But I am sorry. I am sorry. I've got to protect myself. But I'm telling you, it's not fair. I just got to, had to get that on the system. I'm sorry. The point is, is that things are trying to separate us and, and keep us apart and do damage and, and harm the body, the body of Christ. And ultimately, we have to stand strong. We have to stand together. We have to come into unity. I think that when we get to heaven, you know, and I don't understand this in the first place. I don't understand why Sunday mornings are is is the most segregated day of the week. Period. Um, It's the most segregated day of the week because you have uh, you have your Methodists and your Baptists and your Presbyterian and your Catholics and you have your Black Baptists and then you have your White Baptists and then you have you know the it's the most separate segregated time of the week, but I think when we get to heaven, well, I, don't, I don't think we're going to stand up there with St. Peter or whatever, and he's going to be like, okay, all the Baptists over here, the white Baptist over here, and the, the Methodist over here, and the Church of Christ over here, and you know, I don't think that's the way it's going to be. I believe that we're just one body representing one. We all have the same blood that flows through our, our veins. And, and we, we were paid for with a great price. And with that great price, he, he did it for the Jews and the Gentiles, for all men, for you and for me. And so I think it's time that we stand up and we just worship and we, we be the example and the voice that, that God's called us to be. But, but today, sometimes we're broken. And the only thing that can mend the brokenness of the world is Jesus. <laughs> It, it really is. It's Jesus. It's not church. It's not religion. It's not Christianity. It's Jesus. Jesus is the only thing that can heal and mend the broken hearted. I, I used this illustration a few years ago as well, but have you ever heard of uh, Kintsugi? Kintsugi. Um, it's a Japanese... Uh, word, and it literally means golden uh, joinery, okay? It's a really cool process. If you ever have a chance, YouTube it and watch them uh, make it. They take, like, brand new plates and bowls and stuff, and it started just as a um, kind of an accident uh, in in, uh, upper, uh, I don't remember what they called him, like, not, it wasn't a king, but Royalty and, and upper royalty. Some china was broken that was very valuable to whoever this was, and it was a big deal. So they took gold and they mended the broken china and put it back together. And that's what uh, kintsugi is. They literally take what's broken and and they mend it, but they mend it with gold, joined together. So now what they do is they'll take brand new stacks of plates and bowls and they'll drop it or break it, bust it because it's more valuable broken, and then put back together with gold. Listen, that's the body of Christ. Our value is when we're finally broken for people, that we're broken for people who don't understand who Christ is and what God has done for them, that we're broken for people who are misunderstood. We're broken for people that are misrepresented. We're broken for people who are not heard, who don't have a voice, that we're literally broken through that process. And in that process of brokenness, that we allow Jesus, that we allow God to begin to mend the brokenness and put us back together again. Amen? And I think that's so important for us as a church. And and through that, God's going to put America back together again. Colossians chapter number 1, verse 15, it says this, 
The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In him all things hold together. When he is the center of everything that we do, when he's the center of our conversations, when he's the center of our actions, all things hold together. And it says this, and he is the head of the body, which is the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. And in everything he might have supremacy, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself to all things whether on earth, things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. See, he has got to be the focal point and the center of everything that we do. God takes what's broken, what's, what's dis- what we think is destroyed, and right now when you look at, at, when you watch the news, it's just chaos. It's just craziness. But God takes those things, and he's waiting for us, the church, to continue to speak. And you say, well, but I don't have anything to do with going downtown L.A. or downtown whatever. But continue to use your influence in your world, and it will. You will make a difference in your world. (laughs) And it might be one person that you touch, one person who opens their eyes, one person who sees things differently because they see God in you and they see Christ in you and they they begin to have a a mind shift, a paradigm shift. And our world begins to ripple and it becomes a ripple effect and you can make a difference. You can make a difference. And, And if it's the last thing that we do, we just have to have a voice, a voice for those who who don't. I believe that beauty lies in diversity. I believe that we can be a a diversified church, but still not have diversity in our heart. And so I think it's something that you have to recognize, you have to address. I want to get to a place where we're ministering to the broken and the lost. There's a lot of people who hop on planes and they'll fly across the world to Africa and do missions trips in Africa, but they won't go across the street and meet their neighbors. That's a true story. You know, they'll work really hard to go and save up money to go somewhere else where they can. And, and I, have, you, have any of you ever been on a missions trip? What's funny about a missions trip is, is when you take people uh, that have never been before, they become somebody you've never seen before, Right? When they get out there on this missions trip, they all of a sudden they're like, wow, and they see things the way Jesus sees them, and, and they just become this different person. But too often we come home and you're the same. I remember when the year that I met Jenica, it was the day that I met her was March 24th, 2003, 2003. And uh, Tishan was with me on that trip. And I remember this, meeting Jenica and then coming home and us getting on a plane or getting on, a, on, a, on the van to head back to Houston. We stopped at a little Mexican food place. Now that I live in Houston, I think it was somewhere down, it was somewhere down 1960 headed towards 45. Uh, and we ate Mexican food there. And I remember sitting at the table and I couldn't eat. Uh, several of us couldn't eat. We just couldn't. Um, because everything that we had just seen, the, the devastation and the, the lack of food and the hunger and the starvation that we had just witnessed over the last few days, we come back as Americans and we go, man, we just, we can't, this is not fair. I ended up going to Haiti every month for a year, a little over a year to see Jenica through this adoption process when we decided decided to adopt. But I remember thinking, I, I don't know if how Americans are so selfish. And you sit there at restaurants and you hear people gripe and complain 
and I would become so angry. When I come back from Haiti, I'd become so angry at Americans for being so ungrateful. You know, no, this was cold. No, I didn't want this. I wanted that. No, I wanted it medium, not medium rare or, or well done. And just gripe and gripe and gripe and complain. But I would go to Haiti with Jenica, and whatever food we set in front of her, she would sit and eat and eat and eat. And she would lay her head on the table, and she would keep eating. And she would just sit there, and she was, like, sick. And she would not stop eating. She would fall asleep eating. We'd pull the food away from her because she had eaten for an hour. And she would scream and cry and complain because she thought that was maybe her last meal because she just had a handful of rice every day. That was her food. And I've become so angry with Americans for being so ungrateful and so uh, hypocritical. And all of a sudden, I began to group people in my that I'll, in my in-group and light group, sociologists they say that that's a thing. It's called grouping, where you group people and you sort them with things that you like. So you have groups of people. So you have your sports and your uh, uh, media or, or whatever your groups are, you know, your social groupings, like lead pastors maybe a group or, or managers are a group or welders are a group or women is a group and men's a group and Lawyers or mechanics, police officers, doctors, all these different groups of people, homeless people is a group. And, and what sociologists say is that you group people based on all these different things, standards in your own life. And you get involved in these groups. And when you're involved in a group, you become intimately involved. And so you know the ins and outs. Okay? So if you're a doctor, you know the ins and outs of being a doctor. You know some details and some behind-the-scenes things that no one else knows unless you're a doctor. That you, no one else deals with. If, if you're a pastor, there's things that you see and deal with that maybe no one else knows unless you're that. So whatever group that you're not in, that's called your out group. Okay? So your in group is, is the group that people are like you. They relate to you. They, you identify with them because they, they're your race or they're your social standing or they're your football team. You know, they go for the same. And so you have all these ends, and then you have your out group. Out groups, you may not know nearly as much about them because that's not your group. So they, sociologists have this thing. It's called in-group bias, and it's the, tens, the tendency to give special treatment to people of your in-group. In-group bias is when you find people in your profession or in your color or with the same football team or baseball team, and you begin to give them special treatment because they're on your page, okay? They're together. Um, They say that we're more comfortable with people in our in-group. That when we're in our in-group, it's easier to be patient. It's easier to give them the benefit of the doubt, to give them grace when they mess up, make mistakes. It's easier to communicate with them. It's easier to get along with them. It's easier to help those. And it's more positive in our just assumptions towards people that are in our in-group. But there's also a thing called out-group discrimination. Statistics show that in out-group discrimination, People are less comfortable with people in their outgroup. They're far less patient. They, do, they give less of the benefit of the doubt, less grace when mistakes are made. It's really harder to communicate with people in our outgroup discrimination. It's harder to get along with. It's harder to get help, give help to. And there are less positive assumptions that are made with people in our outgroup discrimination and you can say well you know I'm not a racist that's fine but when someone walks into the room and you can't communicate you can't identify with you can't relate to and and there's less positive assumptions being made you can call it what you not what you want but it's not healthy it's called out bias discrimination. We have to realize that we are different. All of us are different. There's not any of you in here that look just like me. I don't even know if we have a redhead in the house this morning. 
Um, Freckle face, redhead, like me. We're different. Most of your legs don't glow in the dark like mine do. My legs glow in the dark. Some people call that a blessing. Some people call it a curse. But we're all different. And when we learn to embrace the differences we have in, in life, I think it's so positive. But when we learn to embrace the, the thing that we have in common, which for us it's Jesus. If we, if we, can, if we can base everything off of our in-group bias, which is Jesus. I remember growing up, uh, my dad was a pastor and my parents pastored church all my life and uh, they would, in the church, everybody says brother and sister Brooks and when I got older, I was like, do not call me brother Brooks, I'll punch you. And they would say brother and sister Brooks and oh, thank you brother Brooks and oh, and at my first church, one of my, well, my second church I was a youth pastor at, it was a real, real country church. Real country. And uh, they would say, hey, sister Vaughn, come up here and sing a song with us. It was just, everything was brother and sister. And I thought, man, when I become a pastor, it would never be brother and sister. Because that's so old school. Until you start looking at why it was said. The reason it was said is because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And from the very moment you walk in, people start saying, hey, Brother Daryl, it's good to see you. Hey, Sister Rachel, so good to see you. And immediately, as, as much as I would like to think, man, that's so old school, but immediately it identifies you as an in-group bias, that there's something that we have. We don't have to know each other and know all of our likes and dislikes and preferences, our favorite football team, or baseball team, or color, or restaurant, or whatever, but there's one thing that we have in common that makes us brother and sister, that makes us brothers immediately, and that's Christ, because at the, in the end of the day, we, we need each other, we need each other, and so who, who do you have in your life that, that you haven't pushed so far away because of your out were discrimination, your outgroup discrimination. So I was thinking about when Jenica goes to college, and, and uh, it's going to be crazy. You know, uh, I'm not prepared to be that old of a dad. I got little ones, and that's how I want to base my age off of my little ones. But I forget, I got a an old one. She's going to college. And I was thinking about her credits and what credits would roll in her life, through her life. And then as a father, what, what role do I really play? Am I just dad or was I a big influencer? And I started thinking about all of our seniors. And then it made me go, you know what? All of our seniors play a pretty significant role in my credits. Just not because you just come to church, but there's been interactions. There's been things that have just happened, you know? Like Mia. I remember Mia when she was actually really a little girl. She was little. It's been years and years and years that I've watched Mia grow up. And just so much life and fun. And she gets up here and she gets all shy and quiet, which was weird. But I've had Mia, she's come over to our house, and she's babysit our kids for us. And, and I've become friends with Mia's mom and dad and, and her grandparents. And so now there's this connection. And, and so when my credits are rolled, there's like this whole family that comes in and part of that. And Dylan, I remember Dylan coming to the church. and We get into talking and, and start hanging out. And, and the first Sunday that they were here, I was playing the drums. And... Dylan was, I just, you know, you're, when you're up here, you kind of scan the room and stuff. And Dylan just kept watching me. And he had his hands in his pocket. And he just watching me the whole time. And I was like, this guy's got to be a drummer. And so I asked him one day, I was like, so I heard you play the drums. And he was like, yeah. His eyes light up. I was like, dude, let's show me. Play something. I got him up here and got him playing on drums. And 
I was like, hey, what if you try this? And he started doing stuff. And I was like, hey, you got to start playing. And he's just jamming around and start talking to his mom and dad and start hanging out with his dad a little bit. And his dad's like, I, was, I, I could slap a bass a little bit. You can play the bass? Yeah, yeah, I can play the bass a little bit. And he started playing with it. He started coming up here, and he would just hang out and start playing the bass a little. And then next thing you know, he's up on stage playing with us. And so when my credits roll, there's this family in my credits. Then uh, I'm in seventh grade. I'm in junior high, and I moved to this town. I left the town that I grew up in for almost all my life, and going into junior high or going into eighth grade, I'd go to this little bitty town where everybody was like family. Everybody knew everybody. Everybody was kin, and so I am the out guy. I am the outcast. And you just, it's hard to explain unless you've been there, but I, I remember going, hey, she's kind of cute. Have you dated her? And they're like, no, that's my cousin. Oh, really? Have you dated her? No, that's my cousin. <laughs> Have you dated her? Yeah, when we were in first grade. So it was like, wow, this is weird. Everybody's kin and been together. But I meet this guy, and we become best friends, and we go through school together, and we get older and get married, and then he has his first baby girl. Little Miss KK. And I remember watching KK grow up via long distance and telling Kevin one day, I was like, man, what sucks is that we're best friends and I don't get to see, be with your kids. I want to be with your kids. I want to know your kids. I want them to know Uncle Jared. And then they move here. And so I get to be around KK. And KK calls me Dad Squared. And it's a joke, but it's not a joke to me. It's really important to me. And when KK calls me Dad Squared, it makes me feel like a million bucks. Because she's in my credits. She has a role in my life. And it's not her dad's role. She's not Kevin's daughter to me. She's KK. She's her own. And, and that's important that she plays that role in my life. And then there's Jenica, who probably one of the most stable things I've ever had in my life over the last 16 years. And I met Jenica when she was about a year and a half old. And most of you know the story, so I won't bore you with all those details, but she just wasn't in a good place. They didn't believe she was going to live very long. And so she, I picked her up just because I was a nice guy. I was picking up everybody. And, uh, I just picked her up, and she just latched on. I mean, she latched on. And so we walked around the orphanage all day long and talked to people. They wouldn't let her in the orphanage unless she was with us. So we kind of kept her with us, and we walked around. And I remember going home that night going, hmm, we need to talk to the missionary. We need to adopt this girl, like, as a missions project. We're going to start sending her clothes and food and all that. That night, I could not sleep. I couldn't sleep because all I could think about was that little girl hanging on to my neck. And me wondering if anybody was ever going to love her. Or if she was just going to stay by herself all the time. So the next day, our team was going somewhere else. And I went to the missionary and I was like, I got to go back to the, I got to go back to Cabaret. He was like, well, we're going here. And I was like, okay, what do I need to do? He said, we need, you need to find a driver and an interpreter. I said, okay. So I went and found a driver and an interpreter. And I went back to Cabaret and I started negotiating with this lady. Long story short, I bought Jenica for $500. So I bought Jenica for $500, got her out of that orphanage, took her to Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and put her in a Christian orphanage. And it was at that moment, that day, that we decided it had, we had to adopt her. She had to be mine. And I started thinking about what it was going to be like, you know. All my, I had lots of black friends. That was no big deal. But I was like, I wonder what people are going to say. I wonder what people are going to do. I wonder if black people are going to like me. I wonder if black people are going to hate me. I wonder what white people are going to say. And so you just start wondering these things. But it didn't, none of it mattered. And then I get her home, and, and 
you know, she was scared of black people because she had had terrible, traumatic experiences in the orphanage. So when black people would come up and talk to her, she would scream. And I was like, I didn't do anything. I had nothing to do with that. I had nothing to do with it. She came out of a bad situation. And it was just this process. I remember for the first year or two, it was really awkward. Everywhere we went, we got stared at, like really stared at. And then it just kind of disappeared until you're somebody that's not used to it. And then you go with us and you find out, actually never really disappeared. I just don't notice it anymore. But I know this is that making the decision to adopt Jenica was probably the greatest decision that I ever made. And your role in my life, you have a starring role featuring top line Jenica Grace Brooks. That's how important you are in my credits. So when I think about the seniors and I think about the credits that roll at the end of your life, or when I think about when you go to college, or when you go and get a job, or you go to the military, whatever you do, what role does this church play? What do you take away from here? And there's a saying that has always been one of the most important sayings to me ever. Because there's a lot of things that we can teach you. But there's a saying that says this. The best things in life are caught, not taught. And what I mean by that is if there's anything that you catch from this church is that never measure yourself against anyone or anything or a book or anything other than Jesus. When you're trying to compare, when you're trying to make decisions, when you're trying to look for answers, always look back. And if there's anything that I pray that you catch from us as a church, it's that. That the best things in life are caught. Not taught. morning. I, I didn't mean to get on to some kind of weird uh, social soapbox or whatever, but I just think that there's some things you can't be silent about. And so I just ask you as a church, Think about this. Think about your voice, your influence. And when you choose to say something, choose it carefully. Not everybody's going to agree with everything you say and every, every stance you make. But measure it to Jesus, and you'll be okay. Would Jesus say something like this? Would Jesus approve of this? How would this make Jesus feel? How would he respond? But I say that to say this. I, I hope that it empowers you to have a voice, to have a say. Because people in the world, they need to hear the church start to talk. The church needs to say something. Amen. Father, we love you so much, Jesus. God, I, I, think, I thank you for the life that you've given us. Thank you for the things that you've done for us. But God, right now, most of all, I pray for, for our nation. I pray for the things that are happening in our world today. God, I pray for wisdom as, as men and women, wisdom as fathers and mothers, wisdom as parents and grandparents. God, that will say the right things, that will be the right things. God, that our stand will be strong, that our stand will represent you, that our stand will represent your heart. God, and that at the end of, of our lives, that we, 
we, through these stands, that we've played a role in people's lives, that we've become maybe an important voice in somebody's, somebody's life, God, that we've made a real difference. So, Jesus, I ask right now for strength. I ask for wisdom, God. I ask, Lord, that, that you empower us to say and do the right things. God, in a moment, in a situation, God, when, when we find ourselves kind of caught, it may be a conversation. I pray at that moment, Lord, that your, your spirit will rise up inside of us, God, and, and empower us to say the things, God, that, that you've called us to say that will represent you in the most powerful way possible. And through that, people will be healed, people will be touched, lives will be changed, and it will begin a ripple effect, God, throughout this nation of, of men and women of God standing up, playing a role in people's lives like we've never played before. God, so we just give you all the praise for that, Jesus. In your precious name we pray. Amen.